This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. July marks 50 years since Apollo 11 landed on the moon, and astronaut Neil Armstrong said those famous words. These days, there is a renewed excitement around space travel as so many private companies like SpaceX, Virgin Galactic, and Blue Origin are working towards making this a commercial venture for tourists. But the history of the Apollo missions and the race to space was full of intrigue and unusual characters, as it was the time of the Cold War and the U.S. and the USSR competing against each other. The new book, Escape from Earth, A Secret History of the Space Rocket, takes a look at this time. The author, Fraser MacDonald, is a lecturer at the University of Edinburgh, and he joins us right now. Fraser, great to have you with us. Thanks so much for having me on, Dan. Thank you. And this is unique because I I think with anything that surrounds this time where the space industry was really getting off. Hollywood obviously makes it very grand and such, but but you take us into some of the darker aspects of, of this side, which I, I think not a lot of people realize. Right, right. And so um, so my book kind of deals with, yes, partly the dark aspect of, of space exploration, but also the stuff that people tend to not know about. So obviously with the Apollo um, anniversary coming up, um, we were really mindful of what an amazing human achievement it was to um, to get onto the moon, and we're really um, many people are aware of the the kind of legacy of um, of that achievement, and a lot of it gets credited to um, famous German engineer Werner von Braun. Um, but so what what my book does is to kind of uncover the previous history yep. that has kind of been forgotten but also slightly repressed because it's actually quite a difficult history to to know about which is that one of the but before um America got hold of the German engineers that kind of took Apollo to the moon America had its own space program at Caltech the problem is that many of these uh, engineers had joined the Communist Party. And that's really the kind of focus of, of, of my book, is uncovering the, the kind of awkward, slightly um, difficult history of a bunch of um, kind of left-wing graduate students who pioneered America's first space program, but have kind of been written out of the story on account of their politics. But part of this, and when you think about that time, you're, you're right in the time of McCarthyism anyway. And so that was such a, a prevalent uh, period of time in this country. Right. And, um, and so these, a lot of the engineers I'm talking about, including um, the main character in my book, a, a really smart and gifted engineer called Frank Molina, who founded the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, so, yeah, all these people were caught up in McCarthyism, but actually their story precedes that. Okay. And they, they really joined the Communist Party before, this is going to sound ridiculous, but it, before it was controversial. Like They joined in 1938, and they joined in order to fight fascism abroad. Many of these engineers were Jewish, profoundly concerned about what was happening in, in Europe. And also they just wanted to, they wanted radical change at home. So to give an example of that, they, um, they campaigned uh, against the racial segregation of their local swimming pool. 
so this is in Pasadena and in, in, in Los Angeles, where the pool had a blacks-only session uh, on a Wednesday afternoon, after which the pool was drained and cleaned for whites to return on Thursday morning. And they were abho- they just found this utterly abhorrent. And they saw either, maybe, you know, we can argue about whether it was right or wrong, but they mm-hmm. saw the Communist Party at that time as a vehicle for real change. And that's why they joined. But, of course, later in the McCarthy era, all that really caught up with them. And I understand that, that some of your research came out, out of FBI files that have, had been locked away, correct? Right, right. So um, I first of all got hold of the FBI file um, for kind of my guy, this really interesting character called Frank Molina. And I just kind of, I I realized this, there were just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of, um, you know, phone transcripts and informant testimonies. And I started to get, I just kind of blinked at some of the allegations that were contained in this FBI file. Right. Um, allegations that not only was he a member of the Communist Party, but he was accused of espionage. And so part of my hunt in this book is trying to work out, um, uh, you know, the, the background to that. And, in, in, and as I conclude, there wasn't really any good evidence against him. But yes, I mean, a lot of my archives were based on trying to get um, files declassified for a lot of these um, left-leaning graduate students, but whose politics were not particularly controversial at the time. It's just right. that later in the McCarthy era, they became much more, uh, much more of concern to the FBI. So tell us more about, about Frank Molina, who you say is, is truly one of the pioneers of the industry and, and really was invested heavily in, in building rockets, but then I guess went away from it and became a painter. Right, right. It's such an unusual story. But he, as I see it, he's like the most important engineer you've probably never heard of. Um, he's the first person in the United States to make rocketry successful. So to the extent that people know about the history of space exploration, they maybe know a bit about von Braun, you know, the kind of um, German engineer who ends up on you know, Walt Disney. They might know about Robert Goddard, who was an early experimenter with liquid propulsion. But actually, Goddard was not successful. He was a pioneer. He did some important experiments, but he never got a rocket high. And after all, that is the point of a rocket, is you want to be able to get it to what Goddard called an extreme altitude. And it was Molina. He was the first person to manage that in the United States. And not only does he do that with his rocket called the, the WAC Corporal, but he then founds the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which is even today just among the most important um, institutions for, um, for interplanetary exploration. Right. So Molina was just this, you know, he was a, in some ways quite an ordinary student. He was clever, but he was also determined. He had a certain kind of tenacity. He was from um, Texas, but with a Czech background. And um, yeah, he had this kind of strange career where he was incredibly successful in rocketry, only to then leave the United States in a hurry as things got a little bit politically hot, but also because he felt disillusioned that the very rocket he'd created was likely to become a vehicle <laughs> for the world's first uh, nuclear missile. It was, it was about to become weaponized, and he then wanted to become... Um, he wanted to work for peace, and he worked for UNESCO, and then eventually yeah. he became this painter. 
You also talk about a gentleman by the name of Jack Parsons, who was a, a friend of Molina's and, and a rather unique, unique individual as well. <laughs> An interesting character is one way of putting it. Suppose, <laughs> might be, might be the understatement of the year I've just a given. A little bit of an understatement. So um, there's, there's obviously a, there's a big TV series on SBS at the moment called Strange Angel, which is all yep. about Parsons. Yep. And Parsons is, he's pretty off the wall. He is... Um, He's not an engineer. He's not doesn't have a great um, education. He's a sort of self-taught chemist, um, but also an occultist. So he is a explosives expert that is also deeply into the occult practices and knowledge of an English magician called Alistair Crowley. And so he um, in in Pasadena he is um, part of this. Um, okay, kind of underground occult group that um, uses ritual sexual magic um, as part of their kind of um, you know, religious practice. But there's also a sense in which Parsons actually uses some of that magic as a, as a prelude to rocket tests, which is kind of unusual in, you know, engineering. Um, and so um, uh, there's quite a lot written about Parsons. Um, his story is well known. It's just that for the most part, it's wrong. Um, and he, tend, he tends to get cast as this kind of charismatic sexual hero. And in fact, he is a much, genuinely much darker figure, as I make out, as well as being an FBI informant who all along is informing on his friend, Frank Molina. So let's go back. You mentioned uh, that there is a link between the Nazi party and the Jet Propulsion Lab. Take us through how that, how that all came together. Well, there's not an exact link between the um, okay. between the Nazis and JPL, but rather, in fact, the link is more extraordinary than that. Which is that in um, in the aftermath of the Second World War, when the Americans realised the extent of um, Hitler's rocket program, um, the V2 rocket program. So the V2 was a rocket that Hitler. Uh, um, was keen to have built by Werner von Braun, and it rained terror on London and Antwerp in the last days of last year of the of the Second World War, and and because it was such a weapon of terror, the whole thing about the V2 was you couldn't hear it coming. It was supersonic. It was just death from the unknown, and and the US, unsurprisingly, were really keen to get hold of that kind of technology. So what they did was they just took 1,600 engineers from Germany. Um, over to the United States under the auspices of um, an operation called Operation Paperclip. And many of these engineers were Nazi Party members. They were SS members. Von Braun was a member of both the Nazi Party and the SS. And actually, it's that strain of engineering that is extremely important in the later development of the Apollo program. And that does, you know, sometimes it's acknowledged, but I suspect, I think not acknowledged enough. And this really crazy thing is that None of that political baggage held back Werner von Braun. He is still celebrated as a, a crater in the moon named after him. But the, much, um, uh, but the other kind of political baggage that Molina was bearing, that's to say he had joined the Communist Party to fight racial segregation, that meant he was absolutely persona non grata, that he really was out in the cold and has really been... Um, largely written out of the story of American space exploration. And that, I think, is, yeah, it's kind of not ideal. 
We are joined on the phone by Fraser McDonald, who is the author of the book Escape from Earth. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So how did, how did China end up playing a role in this entire process? Right. So there's, um, uh, again, another one of these kind of unexpected links um, that I, I initially thought, oh, maybe there's something there. And then it turned out to be massive, I think, which is that one of Melina's, um, one of Melina's colleagues at Caltech, another uh, very smart engineering student called Sushen Tian um, from China, he comes to work with Melina's supervisor called Theodore von Karman. Uh, and Theodore von Karman is one of the great kind of um, aeronautical engineers. He gives us the kind of swept back lines of the modern jet aircraft. And Tien, the Chinese rocketeer, was close to Molina and helped a lot in the more theoretical aspects and mathematical aspects of, of designing the first rockets. And was, was like Molina, very successful, quickly rose up um, the ranks of, um, uh, of, of Caltech and... Um, but once Molina had left the United States, and once Molina's colleagues started making allegations of espionage, the entire kind of security apparatus descended on Tien, who at that stage was still at Caltech. Molina had gone to Paris, but Tien was still, still working at Caltech. Right. And he was, as I see it, really unfairly accused of potentially um, being a spy. And... And the United States couldn't quite work out whether to deport him or because he had such valuable expertise to detain him. And in fact, they did both. They detained him for four years um, and eventually they deported him to China, where, of course, uh, unsurprisingly, China was delighted to receive this dividend of, um, of rocket expertise. And that engineer from Caltech, um, Su Shen Tian, then becomes the founder of the Chinese space program. So it was an incredible strategic blunder on the part of the United States, which is that they handed over the expertise um, to form a rival space program to a communist adversary, but yet all under the guise of trying to demonstrate, as it were, domestic anti-communism at home. And so, yeah, what has to be one of the, one of the greatest strategic blunders of, uh, of the 20th century. We're joined again by Fraser McDonald, who is the author of the book Escape from Earth, A Secret History of the Space Rocket. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment on Twitter at BizRadio132 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Now, when we think about uh, the, the 50s and the 60s uh, in the space race, as I mentioned, we talk uh, about Russia as a part of it. But how much was Russia... Did they play a role in this earlier time frame? Well, uh, yes. Um, I mean, Russia uh, developed their own space program. Part of that was also uh, Russia, like Britain and the United States, were all scrambling after um, after uh, V two technology from Germany. But they had their own, you know, quite long tradition of. Um, uh, of rocket engineering going back to the famous theoretician um, uh, Tilkovsky. Um, and so, uh, but I would say that their, um, their engineering is much kind of slower to get off the ground, if you pardon the pun, um, than in the United States. I think the real paradox here is that we think of, when we think of the Cold War, we think of it as being, uh, 
United States versus the Soviet Union in terms of rocket engineering. Yet the great kind of surprise to me here was, in many ways, there was also... Um, there was also a debate internal to the United States that was not just between the United States and the Soviet Union, but inside the United States there were debates between um, conservatives and socialists about the direction of, of space exploration and also what, what was it for. And, and, and for Melina and for many of the others involved in his program at Caltech, they really wanted um, they wanted space exploration not as a weapon of war, not to kind of just kill people and break things, but they wanted um, rocket engineering as, as a vehicle for civilian science and a way of kind of improving um, ordinary people's lives. And, and from their perspective, it's not like rocketry was a, a massive proletarian uh, kind of necessity, but they could see that at the same time it was able to provide um, potential uh, applications for civilian life that would really genuinely make a difference to ordinary people, like weather forecasting, for instance, which, of course, turned out to be completely, completely accurate. So, yeah, there's this kind of strange paradox that, that, in fact, the Cold War is a lot more complex than, um, than we make it out to be, and that the division is not just a kind of division of superpowers, but a division, as it were, inside a superpower within the United States. You know, it's interesting, in the, the growth of the, of the space industry, we obviously have a connection to the state of Florida. Uh, there's obviously Houston as well. Uh, and, and I think at times we forget about the role that the state of California has played right, in, in, right. The, in the space program as well. It's, 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 it's really interesting. And I think that, I mean, obviously Los Angeles is really known as a, as a center for, um, uh, for airplane design. And, of course, that's, where, that's why the rocket work starts there. Yeah. Um, so um, there's a cluster of engineers at Caltech which are, who are really trying to pioneer things like propeller design and airfoil design. And they've got the tools to do that, things like wind tunnels and so on. But it's that very expertise that ends up becoming really important in and being able to, um, uh, to, to take it to rocket research. But I guess there's that other thing going on in, in Los Angeles, which is just the, the kind of kookiness, the kind of, um, uh, the kind of eccentricities, the colorful characters, all of which does play a role in this story. And it's really worth um, bearing in mind that when... When rocketry first starts in the 1930s, um, we think of now rocket science as being, it's like a shorthand for complexity. You know, we, it's not rocket science. We, you know, we talk about it. It's not complicated, right? But actually, those words, rocket and science, they didn't even belong in the same sentence together. Like, the, right. the idea of rocket science in the 30s was ridiculous. It was for cranks and fantasists and charlatans. Um, and yet it's quite interesting that it's in California and, and, and in Los Angeles that you have the sort of outsiders, I guess, who are willing to give this a try. And so it's perhaps no coincidence that it starts there because um, it takes slightly unconventional types to, first of all, to be attracted to this domain uh, of, of science and then subsequently to actually make it work, which they did. How uh, you mentioned Mr. Tian, uh, who obviously is uh, you know played a, a big role with Caltech and obviously with the Japanese uh, the development of, of that program. What was his career path in, in terms of once he was able to get the Chinese system uh, up and running off the ground? Yeah, so he um, well he had a long career in in, in the United States. Um, uh, he didn't leave until the mid nineteen fifties. 
Um, but he lived, he lived to a very uh, ripe old age and became the you know, founder of China's um, space program. Um, and, and it's kind of interesting that, um, that China is very careful to credit Tian as, as it were, the founding father of their own space program in ways that are quite different from the United States in acknowledging essentially the same history. So um, Molina is regarded as being a very marginal figure. He tends not to be remembered. Um, and, and yet, of course, they're doing the same and they're doing the same engineering. They're part of the same program. Um, and it's interesting that China, I think, is very careful to, um, to give credit to Tian. The great irony, I suppose, is that Tian then designs rockets um, for China that end up getting passed on to states with even less cordial relationships with the United, with, with the United States. So, for instance, um, Tian's silkworm missile ends up getting fired back at the United States in, um, uh, in the first Iraq war and as recently in uh, 2016 uh, um, by Houthi rebels in, in Yemen firing one of a rocket is essentially a Tian design coming originally from China. So there's kind of there's a great kind of circularity um, there that is a little bit bizarre. Um, but yes, it's 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 a remarkable history. And to reiterate a point I made earlier, just a great uh, just a great strategic mishap to to deport for no good reason an engineer that actually hands on such important technology to to what was then, uh, uh, you know, a rival, a rival communist state. But what, were the, what was the role of, of some of the security entities here in the United States at that period of time in kind of watching how this was all developing? And obviously part of this, as we said at the top, was the fact that uh, some of these files were, were FBI files that had been locked away for a long period of time. So what was the role of entities like the FBI back in these days? So the FBI... Um, the FBI were, had a really quite genuinely legitimate concern with espionage. Um, and so they were following any engineers who they thought, who they suspected of being not even members of the Communist Party, anyone they suspected of being sympathetic, anyone who'd even turned up at a meeting of uh, maybe a front organization or some sort of, I don't know, a peace outfit or um, a union meeting even, all of that would raise, um, would raise an alarm. And it's quite, so I kind of started this book thinking, you know, uh, McCarthyism is pretty unfair and a lot of people were victims of it. And, and all of that is still true. I sort of finished the book thinking, yeah, I can, I can see why the FBI were concerned. Because even though I think Molina and Tien, there's absolutely no evidence that they did anything untoward whatsoever. There, it's, it's absolutely true that the Communist Party was both. Uh, a grassroots network of socialist ideals for you know high-minded young students, and simultaneously it is this centralized creation of Moscow, um, mm -hmm. ruthlessly um, uh, exploiting these um, campus groups in order to, to further their own intelligence operations. And the FBI understand this, and and so it's, it doesn't seem massively surprising to me that they. Um, they go after people like Molina and Tien, even though it has really quite kind of heartbreaking implications for them. Um, it is nonetheless true that the Communist Party was serious about espionage, serious about um, atomic espionage and, and rocket espionage. 
And after all, these were engineers working in with classified data, at yeah. a high, you know, high security institution. So, yeah, it, it's hardly surprising. You've mentioned it once or twice during the interview, but I wanted to touch on it before we wrap things up it is how a lot of these dynamics that, that were in play back in the 30s and 40s, there are still some elements that, that, that are very much in play today. Um, yes, I mean, I, I guess um, there, are, there are definite kind of, um, there are parallels. I mean, just the, just the sheer need for security and concern about um, uh, technology transfer, for instance, between the U.S. and China, all of that is still very much, you know, clearly a lot of anxiety um, about that now. I kind of make the point uh, um, in a recent piece I did just last week that, in fact, the impetus to try and um, batten down the hatches a bit and become much more secretive and much less cooperative in terms of our, um, you know, a kind of collaborative international space endeavor, I think it's likely to end up um, creating uh, unhappy side effects. And I think what we can learn from the Tien um, episode is that in trying to kind of act for America's self-interest, you can end up doing exactly exactly the opposite, which is precisely yeah. what happened with Tien. Frazier, uh, congratulations on the book. Good luck with it. And, uh, you know, it's always good to go back and look at a little bit of history. And this is obviously a time in, in our country, which I think a lot of people still have interest about. And as I mentioned at the top, with all of these private companies that are kind of involved in making this a commercial industry, this is a, this is a great story to tell. Thanks for coming on today. Right. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. Fraser McDonald, lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. The book is Escape from Earth, The Secret History of the Space Rocket. Many thanks to Fraser joining us on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.